Charlie. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Sustainable 167. Welcome yourself all to Spain of 167, me child in adults clothing. We are your friendly little environment podcast, didn't we? All about people and the planet and the people who are going to live on it for years to come. And why, despite everything being nosed, it doesn't mean we can't have a little smiley chuckle about it every now and then, didn't we? And breathe. Didn't we? Yes. Yes. <laughs> and what are we going to be having a little smiley chuckle about this week? Well, this week we're going to be talking about a rather wonderful book, which is called Fantastically Great Women Who Saved the Planet. And this is a book not for grown-ups. Oh. Well, not necessarily not for grown-ups, but mainly for children. It is a children's book. It's written by the author and illustrator Kate Pankhurst. And it is one of the, uh, the latest in a series of books about fantastically great women who have done loads of things that you may not necessarily have heard of, because of the world we live in. Yeah, that's right. We had that Kate Pankhurst in here. We didn't ask her at all about the fact that the Pankhurst is the same Pankhurst as uh, suffragettes and she's descended from that long line. Well, she's not really... Um, well, because she isn't really. Yeah. Um, and also that's go what, up the line, across a bit, yeah. and then down on another bit of the line. And yeah. If you read less imaginative media than your babble, you will find everyone saying exactly the same thing, which is like she's infused with the suffragette spirit, but like she's quality and everything, but not, nothing much to do with the suffragettes, as far as we can work out. <laughs> Um, but she has written this book. It's really, really cool. Uh, Ol has a child, so Ol was sent away with the I've book. I've got more than one child. Two kids, that's yeah. right, that's right. Well remembered. Thanks. Uh, so you were sent away with the book to learn some stuff, and you did learn some stuff, didn't you? I did learn some stuff. And, well, we come on to that in the interview, so I won't, I won't cover that ground again, but there are people in there who I am ashamed to say I've not heard of. And given that I work in, you know, saving the planet, broadly, as a sector, I'm not sure how much planet I've really saved but given I work in that 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 field I should have heard of these people and I ain't so I think it's very instructive and very needed and I'm delighted that there are books that are going to kids you know what there are some brilliant people out there what you haven't heard of who have done inspiring things why won't you think about doing that too that's right. So here's our chat with Kate. We enjoyed it. Hope you do too. Before any of that, just the usual disclaimer, we do work for environmental charities, don't we all? Yes. Uh, but if you've got any beef with anything that we say, don't draw up a letter to our bosses. That's an uh, illustrating pun. Uh, yes. But instead, just jot down uh, oh, a few nice. doodles of complaint to me and all, or indeed Kate, yes? Yes, absolutely. Because uh, we may not be the type of writers <laughs> type right writers yeah, who, who uh, deal with complaints very well on with it <laughs> hello Kate hello hi Hello, thank you very much for coming to see us, uh, coming to talk to us and coming to talk to us about your exciting, shiny, new, lovely book. Oh, thank um, you very much. And quite shiny it is too, with the uh, foil letters on the front of yeah. it. Yeah. Normally yeah. when we interview people that have done books, they're really boring books. Oh. They're like <laughs> books without pictures in and they contain like words like neoliberalism and that sort of thing. Uh, but your book's a bit different, which yeah. is really cool. Tell us about it. Yeah, so um, it's called Fantastically Great Women Who Saved the Planet and it is 
the fourth in a series of books about women who have changed the world, made history, worked wonders. Um, and this one focuses on women, as the title suggests, who have saved the planet. Oh. Yeah, um, and it's it's for young children as well. I should say it's a picture book. So kind of target age range, kind of five to nine-ish, bit younger, bit older, depending on if someone's reading it with you or if you reading it on your own so yeah each page is like really heavily illustrated and it's a visual very much like a visual storytelling about these women's lives and the things that they did well you say a uh, target range of five to nine but i definitely learned quite a lot when I was reading it. <laughs> These two things are not universally exclusive. Yeah. That is true. I don't want to put the readership in a box. It's fine <laughs> for fully grown adults to read it too. And they do. Or indeed. Buy, oh. buy it as presents for each other. So that's good. Um, well, and I guess that's kind of uh, the point. Well, is it the point that a lot of the people, a lot of the women featured in this book are people whose stories should have been told and should be widely told and should be like the mainstays of, I don't know, classrooms and and children's books, but aren't. And yeah. it's possibly not that surprising that I haven't heard of them because of that. Yeah, definitely. I think especially with this book, because the theme is very um, current and up to date, it's something that children are talking about in school, something that they're doing and talking about at home, um, kind of environmental issues and what they can do to help. Um, you realise everyone's talking about it, but a lot of the women in this book I wasn't familiar with. There's some people in there, I think because it is such a, a current concern and a current topic, there's women in there that I recognise from growing up myself, like Anita Roddick of The mm. Body Shops. Mm. So bringing in groups like Amnesty to give me a real understanding about human rights, especially in business, bringing in groups like Greenpeace, who really told me the story of what happens in the world. I mean, you don't read those stories, warnings in Forbes magazine or Fortune magazines or The Economist. Um, so she's in there. So in the 1990s, I had my Extinct is Forever yeah. rhino backpack from The Body Shop. Body Shop. Such a good um, Slogan. I was yeah. looking at that in the book and I said, like, that's such a good slogan. Yeah. I've forgotten about it. Really iconic imagery. And anybody who grew up in the 90s or was in the body shop around that time will remember those like elephant and rhino posters Strong that thing. were in there and like turtle shaped soaps. And I remember all the girls <laughs> smelling of kind of this curious fuzzy peach perfume. Fuzzy peach smell. And there's like, <laughs> all gone to the body shop. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's it. But kind of including her in the book. I realised I was aware that when I went into the body shop as a teenager, I was like, oh, yeah, save the rainforest and campaigns about endangered animals and kind of reuse and recycle and being against animal testing. But it's kind of putting that in a picture book for young children. It really did break, bring it home. That was such a different way of doing business. That still is a really different way of doing business today. Uh, so she, going back to your original question, she was one of the women that I was familiar with. Got more familiar with her, learning about her to put her in the book. Um, but yeah, most of the stories in there, most of the women in there, I'd, I had never heard of. So it's really intriguing to kind of do your research and speak to lots of people who work in different areas and see who they suggest or 
to kind of look at an area of environmentalism and see kind of what women are in there and like what stories we should definitely be telling. But yeah, some of the stories in there, you're like, oh, why, why do I not know her name already? That's crazy. So it's great to put it in a pitch book for kids. I let a stupid cockle like you aboard me boat. Perhaps for the money in my purse. <laughs> you have a woman's purse. <laughs> One of the stories that blew my mind was the one where you find out that bees can tell the time. Yes. Yeah. So hang on. This so when I like... tell you when I tell you that bees poo by throwing themselves against a wall, you tell me that's rubbish. Yes, but that's yeah, that's rubbish because a friend, a mate down the pub, yes. told you that and you believed it. In this instance, <laughs> well, you tell the story. Uh, yeah. This is the story about uh, Ingeborg Belling. Is that right? Yeah. Or I've I've just done a, a kids event before I came here at the South Bank Centre, and I was like Ingeborg. I'm pro- choosing to pronounce her name Ingeborg Beeling just because she was into bees. Yes. Uh, yeah. So doing the research for the book like we try and get a bit of a balance of women who had different specialisms so you don't end up with like 13 scientists in the book so she was kind of one of our scientists a biologist uh, and initially before I did my research into her I was like Ingeborg Beeling studied bees like oh what did she study about bees like you know and then I think it's something that kids learn about in school that bees are pollinators and they're incredibly important to our ecosystem so that was what initially drew me to like, oh, interesting story. This could be good in the book. But then it blew my mind a bit. The fact that she, circadian rhythms, the discovery of circadian rhythms. Why don't we think of iPhones when you say that? Because uh, <laughs> they ruin them. Yeah. Because they, they ruin them. They yeah. do. Right. Like the blue light and looking yeah. at screens before bed, it's like messing up my circadian rhythm. I don't but, know what day it is yeah. or what time it is. <laughs> I'd love to say it's the yeah. iPhone's fault. That means yeah. I don't know what day it is, but I, uh, <laughs> I was reaching for... So so too much, circadian but, rhythms is your natural night and day. Yeah, so it's basically... Um, your body's ability. The, all living things ha- follow a circadian rhythm. I'm not a scientist, by the way. I'm a children's book illustrator, so I'm, ju- I'm sorry if any scientists are listening to this and I'm not explaining it correctly. They would have given up to a, on us a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> but basically, um, what we've said in the book is it's your body's a bit, it's your inbuilt system that tells you when to kind of eat, sleep, rest breathe all the rest of it and without it you'd have a pretty hard time surviving so Ingeborg Beeling like picked up on like anecdotal evidence I suppose that bees could tell the time and if you left a food source out at the same time every day they'd always come out at that time to get to it even if you took the food away they'd still come out and look for it at the same time so she investigated uh, like what what is it that's allowing them to tell the time? Is it the electrical charge in the atmosphere? Is it um, levels of daylight, like the temperature outside? So she did loads of experiments taking bees down a salt mine. <laughs> I think they went. <laughs> Why? <laughs> There's no daylight down a salt mine. So, uh, yeah, trying to remove all these like clues that the bees could be getting that was helping them to tell the time and discovered it wasn't anything external. It was internal. (laughs) It was, um, yes, she concluded that bees had an internal clock. And it was that bit of research that that was important in lots of other scientists kind of investigating what makes life on Earth tick. Uh, Yeah, so we included her. You think of like planet saving 
especially when you're talking about it in schools. They're kind of obviously talking about all the really important stuff like climate change, plastic pollution, recycling. But then actually, I thought it was quite nice to include women in the book that were, you know, like planet wanderers as well, that had that attitude towards living things that they wanted to ask loads of questions about them and the idea that a bee can teach us incredible things about what all life on Earth can do. The sound of a chimpanzee greeting the day, announcing, here I am, who's out there? Hello. So some of the stories in the book are are very much about this sort of the inquiring mind that that women featured in the book have that there's the wonder about the world around them. And I was really struck reading about the Jane Goodall story. Yeah. Jane Goodall being one of the people I had heard of. Um, of course, I'd heard of her too, actually. Uh, yeah. Famous, famous chimp person. Um, I don't think she's, a, she, she's a human. She's a human. Yes. She doesn't describe herself as that. Um, but she, uh, in, in a book, you explain that she comes up against this kind of stuffy academic kind of world of like, this is how you study chimps. You give them numbers, not names. Yeah. You know, this is how it's done. And all quite sort of dehumanised and her approach, she sort of wasn't really allowed into that world, is that right? And and was kind of forced to take a different and more more inquiring yeah, and more humanising approach. That's it. I think she kind of came basically, as I understand it, got her job being sent to study chimpanzees in the wild through a very different approach. So she wasn't from the world of academia. Uh, I think she'd been working... Again, I probably should check this. I think she'd been working as a receptionist or like kind of doing secretarial work for the the researcher, the head researcher who sent her who could see that she had a passion for animals and a genuine was intrigued by chimps and the way that they lived. So she kind of went to study them in the wild and it was just that kind of different way of looking at the world and a, a, as you say, like a more humanised approach that the chimpanzees... They weren't just a number in a tick box. They were individuals with personalities and had close family bonds and were in, are incredibly like us. Um, it was being from that different background that allowed her to see those things and to make those breakthroughs and to become an all-round bit of a legend that a lot of people <laughs> have heard of. <laughs> yeah. And do you, like, do you think that that's kind of symptomatic of... Um, of problems, of limitations with that kind of stuffy academic approach to the to the natural world, in the, in that we need to relate to to animals and to the natural world around us as not as humans, but with those human qualities that we identify with and relate to, in the way that sometimes all this kind of highfalutin, numbers based, long words that yeah. we don't understand literature is is just a bit too dry and a bit too kind of distant. That it kind of cuts anything that kind of cuts people out of things that have a valuable opinion or a different way of looking at things is never a good thing. And it's always it's the people who can see things differently that will make that connection that nobody's ever thought of before. I see your true. 
What 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 stories do you think emerge? There's lots of stories of individual women in this, but if you're giving this book to your kid and you're sitting down with them, what are the main messages that you think come out from how women have been involved? I guess maybe across all of your books, you know, but how women have been involved in saving the planet. Are there particular moral messages that you think come out? Yeah, the, yeah. I guess there's that thing, going back to what I mentioned before about, you know, to be a, a planet saver, that means lots of different things. There's that idea that, I mean, not everybody is the type of person to get up with a placard and shout about something, um, but that doesn't mean what you have to say is less important or what you have to do is less important. So hopefully by the kind of range of women that we've put in the book, that there's something in there that a child's going to see reflected back at them, like, oh, I'm a bit like that, or I would handle that situation like that. Um, I think that's... I think with all this series of books, that's important for kind of the women in it not to seem like kind of far... You know, kind of... Because it was in history far away, somebody who did this incredible thing uh, to kind of be able to unpick them a little bit and for children to be able to see those a bit of themselves in some of the women who are in the books. Um, yeah, and the, uh, in this one in particular, there's a lot of stories in here about women inspiring other women to take action, mm. so kind of giving them a, a voice and empowering them to... So Wangari Matai in Kenya, inspiring other women to take action about what was happening to the environment around them due to deforestation yeah well I guess it it's striking that like when you're you know when you're kind of just doing relatively small scale things and it's um it's not confrontational or not not challenging power um there are countless stories in 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 the people uh, featured in this book and and without uh of authorities that were going that's lovely you just keep doing your thing until it gets to the point where they are building a movement and they are challenging power and they are saying no this isn't okay and then it's like oh no we don't like that yeah yeah <laughs> definitely because it challenges it makes life difficult for people doesn't it? it makes life difficult for governments and forces them to look at themselves in a different way and they, you know that doesn't go down too well does it like, all the no, stuff with like generally. greta at the moment yeah it's, uh, yeah somebody needs to read poor greta genesis chapter nine and tell her next time she worries about global warming just look at a rainbow that's god's promise that the polar ice caps aren't going to melt and flood the world again uh, i don't know when you started re writing this book but um I was, I was thinking about greta when i was reading it i was yeah. like if this was two years later, probably <laughs> you'd put her in, wouldn't you? I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting one. Um, and a child at the event I've just been to, actually, like a child and her parent were like, where's Greta? Surely she should be in this book. Um, so I think with the other books, we've kind of gone back to a point in history where it was the maybe the first woman to become a doctor or to qualify as a doctor or, you know, kind of going back to like the root of when something started and the pioneering woman who led that movement. Um and, and then also we do like to pick a range of women that are maybe are lesser known, known to go in the books. And everybody is talking about the amazing things that Greta's doing and kind of the courage of a teenage girl to get up and do everything she's doing. Um, so, yeah, for like a couple of reasons, we didn't put her in the book, actually, for that, because everybody is talking about oh, her okay. already. Um, yeah, and then when we kind of came up with our list of women 
we'd kind of gone slightly further back in history or yeah but she would I mean it you don't want to say, oh, she isn't fantastically great enough. She's not going to go yeah. in the book. It wasn't that for that reason. Do you have like a top trumps system? Uh, yeah. And you're like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but you scored lowly on, I don't know. Not tall enough. Heights. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you didn't make well, it. You do feel a bit bad because you come up with quite a long list and you have to find some way of whittling it down. So you're like, oh, I'm sorry, you can't be in the book. Uh, but it's generally because it's really important Um to make these books as diverse as possible and tell stories from all around the world and from women from lots of different walks of life. That really helps you edit the list down, actually. So you kind of do get that broad range of voices in there. Now, look, they're not all fantastic, the women featured in this book. What? Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. <laughs> Careful now. What do you mean? Yeah. What research have you done that I haven't well, done? <laughs> you mentioned in one of the stories that there was a high fashion in the sort of 1800s, I think, for sticking not only feathers from wild birds, but sometimes entire wild birds. Yeah, like on budgies, your hat. whole budgies on your hat. <laughs> dead or alive? <laughs> dead. Very <laughs> much tell dead. Tell us about that. Like, it's just what? Yeah. So that was, uh, I think, in this book in particular. Let me just get to her page. So it's... um, Vanilla Budgie Killer. Yeah. (laughs) Florence Augusta Miriam Bailey, which is a bit of a mouthful. But she... um, A lot of the other books we've done, we've gone quite far back in history. Like, there'll be somebody... They'd be talking about, like, Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft in the 1700s, whereas in this book, with it being about planet saving, it comes much more to the modern day. Uh, but uh, this, the woman with the budgie hat <laughs> that we're talking about, <laughs> uh, so that, that story is set in the late 1800s. And uh, basically, yeah, like you say, there was a fashion at the time for women to decorate their hats with the plumes of birds that had amazing plumes on their hats but it meant that kind of whole colonies of seabirds were massacred and I read a lot of information about like what was going on and what people were doing to birds at the time to get the feathers for hats and it was really quite horrific stuff about like kind of the whole colony being wiped out and it'd just be the the young newly hatched chicks that were there kind of calling for their mothers was like oh Oh, god that's really harrowing but I don't think I can put that in the book so um, (laughs) Florence basically wasn't into these hats and um, I guess was like a really uh, an early example of an animal rights activist so she set up a society to persuade other women not to not to wear hats like that and to raise awareness about like what was behind that fashion and do you really want to wear that on your head? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's brilliant that she did it, but what did they think was behind that fashion? It's like, you see that bird that's dead on your head? Yeah. That used to be alive. No, no, it's, it's resting, look. Look, my lad, I know a dead parrot when I see one and I'm looking at one right now. No, that's not dead, it's uh, resting. She was also, she was one of the first people to bother to study a bird in the wild. So scientists at the time very much preferred their birds to be dead to study them, like (laughs) Mm. kind of anatomically would like kill them and study them. Whereas she studied bird behaviour and bird song and she wrote some of the first bird watching guides for ordinary people to kind of go into the wilderness. And there's like really lovely things that she wrote in them about, like, walk slowly and noiselessly um, and just wait and listen to see what birdsong 
you tune into. Basically, basically mindfulness in the late oh. 1800s. And do not staple <laughs> them to a hat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think in my first draft of the book, I wrote something about, like, scientists prefer to kill birds before studying them. And then my editor was like, oh, maybe just soften that slightly for the readership. <laughs> This book is all about planet savers, about, about women who are, are doing, have done phenomenal things that are improving the planet or stopping it getting nosed up. Yeah. To what extent did you sort of wrestle with this thing which you hear a lot of teachers talking about and, and parents talking about of balancing the, the kind of grim reality of some of the trends that we see all around us and the need to not completely freak out children and perhaps to try and inspire them to do something about it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah that's very much kind of... It, it kind of helped maybe that this is the fourth in a series of books that kind of explores women in history, but like a way in... The way I've approached all of them, actually, is to make them more of a, a celebration of something that a woman's done a story from history rather than kind of beginning with it was always hard being a girl through history or the planet is burning. (laughs) (laughs) That's why these women had to take action. Um, So, yeah, without... Obviously, you need to get that balance because you don't want to kind of completely sugarcoat it and say, oh, everything's fine. Um, I I I hope the book kind of points out that all these women have done amazing things but obviously it's it's great that this work is carrying on that you're going to be part of carrying this work on yeah I guess kind of picking out the hopeful elements of stories is really important in a book for children but there is that balance where you don't just want to gloss over everything and be like it's all fine (laughs) in many ways that's like sustainable I like to think we sugarcoat some things yeah. and then tell everyone that all the insects are dead. Yeah. There is a kind of non-sugarcoated fact, but I think we could put it in because it seems so far-fetched that it probably will never happen, and that was... Um, about the heat death of the universe. That one's great. Oh, this one was uh, <laughs> that the work of a geologist, Ursula Marvin, um, so she went to the Antarctic meteorite hunting, and the, the work that she did studying meteorites is actually helping scientists today. I've written in the book... Protect protect the planet from impending doom. Oh, <laughs> just, yes. <laughs> just in case an astero- asteroid sets a course for us, they'll know what to do about diverting it. Kate, thank you so much for coming to talk to us and thank you for writing this and your previous fantastic books. Um, it is in bookshops. It is where where would you like people to go and buy it uh, if you could choose? Ah, well, it is um, indie booksellers book of the month for February. I don't know when this podcast will go out. Uh, but, February. Um, February. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, go and support your local indie bookshop if you're lucky enough to have one yes. and get it from there. Excellent. Or if not, you know, Waterstones anywhere. <laughs> And how can, are you on the intertubes? Can people keep in touch with you somehow, see what you're doing on Twitter or anything like that? Yeah, and Kate, Kate is drawing on Twitter Kate and Instagram if you want to see what I'm up to. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you again and good luck with, with this and any future books. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.
then, Dave. What did you make of that? You always ask me that. Oh, why don't you have a bloody go for once? What did you make of it? <laughs> do I always? You do. That? You always do that. We always have like someone on who makes us think stuff, and then you're like, "What did you think, Dave?" And then you like go away and make up a tea and come back in ten minutes, and I'm still banging <laughs> on. Will you have a go? What did you think? Fine, fine. I'll tell you what I think. You're a man. I want to know what you think. <laughs> exactly. Give me your opinion. Finally, some you know some airtime for men on this podcast series. Uh, well, this is no, this is rather the point, isn't it? This is a book for five to nine year olds. Uh, That's so, why I sent you to review it, which is yeah, which is why I was just about capable of <laughs> both <laughs> reading it and understanding it. Um, so you know, it's not going out there and polemicising, but clearly it is also. It's a political book. It's a political series, isn't it? You don't go and write a series about fantastically great women who have done things if you're not trying to make a point that some of these women should have been told their stories should have been told in schools and in, in wider culture, and they haven't been because, and the implication is patriarchy. Patriarchy. Right? Yep, that's us, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's everyone, basically, you know, it's, it's us. Well, no, that's exactly. Right. Patriarchy isn't just... Well, yeah. like you said when you read the book, like, um, it's not really on that there's a book full of women that have been saving the planet and we don't know about it. Um, do now, because read it. Talk to the author <laughs> of it. But, um, yeah, it does sort of go to show something a bit deeper. I mean, I like uh, this environment But stuff. Also, also, sorry to interrupt, but yeah. like, some of the women that I had heard of, I'd only heard of because they'd done things which are kind of acceptable in in the patriarchal right. sort of view of the world. Like so Rachel like, Carson writing a book. Well, she's not even in there, but oh, right. um, uh, Anita Roddick is like, oh, you've do- you've made a really innovative, successful business, which is making money and doing things in a, you know, an acceptable frame. Even Wangarei Matai, like, the reason I'd heard about her is because she eventually won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, was it the Peace Prize? Actually, a Nobel Prize. And it's like, oh, okay, we'll accept you into this kind of relatively right. narrow fold. And and the point is that like, there's all sorts of great things being done and impactful things. It's not just like worthy things. It's things that are making a difference that you don't hear about because they don't fit into that story. There is an archetype. Oh, there is an archetype. An there is an archetype <laughs> uh, of in environmental campaignery world. I think. Maybe it's because I'm a bloke. I don't know. But I think there's an archetype of a sort of bare-chested kind of hero standing up to some diggers. Um, and that, that's probably changed in the last few years with things like the fracking nanas and a lot of the great fracking campaigners are women. And this is not at all to say that there are not some great campaigners out who are women and great campaigners who are men. But I just think, like, that certainly for the time that I've been in the environment world, I think the pictures on the wall and the heroes are mostly being kind of men. And I don't know if that... I hope that's getting changed now. Nobody was bothering them because nobody took them seriously. You know, who takes women seriously? Then the government realized that we were organizing women. So they started interfering with our organizing. Question for you now. Um, you've got, is it two kids now? Yes, no, I'm delighted that uh, yeah. as someone I see weekly and... Um, <laughs> <laughs> exchanging texts with on an almost hourly basis. You've paid close enough attention to them. Uh, I do, in fact, have two children. I know yes. the names. It's Baby Ol and Baby Ol 2. That's right. Yes, yeah. that's fine. Um, they're both boys. Correct. Boy boy Baby Ols, yes. not girl Baby Ols. Yes. Um, do you think at the age that they are, which is what, like three-ish and one-ish? Three, yeah. right? Do they have any... Cons- you only know he's three because I mentioned to Kate 
that he was three? No, it's because at the same time we moved episode 46 with Dale Vince, that was when you <laughs> told me that baby two, baby one was on the way, and that Amazing. was four years ago. <laughs> Amazing. Rain man strikes again. <laughs> Anyway, the point is, uh, they are they are boys. Do you think? What's, what am I trying to ask here? I, I don't have to word this really because this is a whole alien landscape to me. Do they have any conception that there are girls and boys in the sense of like uh, boys are really great and build bridges, and girls are soft and flowery and do cooking, or like what's it like for because I'm thinking that you know it's a couple of years until baby old one is the right age for this book yeah do you think baby old one when he is the right age for this book will kind of need telling that there's a f- women who don't get their stories told or will he kind of know that sorry if you could answer my 19 questions uh, yes that's a it's a complex uh, set of questions that um well I think it's it's pretty obvious that uh, that kids are kind of born without any prejudice, right? And they even uh, yours, even mine, and then they they slowly learn it because of the society around us. And um, I mean, I, I think I might have banged on about this before. I I was so struck by like members of my family going, "Oh, I'm so glad it's a boy because now we don't have to buy any of that horrible pink stuff." And it's like, you know, no one was forcing you to buy pink stuff for girls and blue stuff for boys but if you came round to our our flat and be a nice one though I might like it uh, well last time you came round a mouse was cut in half so do you remember that? I do remember that yeah uh, not by Dave, I should stress <laughs> uh, or me but uh, if you came round you would I don't think it would take you very long to work out that we had a boy uh, in the three year old's bedroom like his clothes are are definitely more kind of boyish than certainly is his peers are. Um, but like we do read him stories, which are, there are some amazing books, actually, amazing kids' books being written for quite young children about inclusivity and about the differences of different communities. And when when he reads it, when, he's, when we read it to him, there's no kind of flicker of like, this is unusual and now I'm going to have to kind of get used to it and accept it. He's just like, oh, that's nice. So it's it's an unlearning, if you like, like that that kind of acceptance. And of course, everyone, grown ups are capable of doing grown up things. Children are capable of doing children things. But you, it's clear that you slowly teach them that grown up men are capable of doing some things, and grown up women are capable of doing other things. Like that's, I mean, that's not exactly a hot take, is it? But it's. I definitely noticed that he's completely comfortable with a range of ideas that actually his grandparents, for instance, would find more challenging. <laughs> I did just want to say one other thing. I'll, you don't have to be between the ages of five and eight to show an active interest in books written by women. <laughs> this is the thing I want to say, by right. which I mean, I was overhearing a conversation today when one of my colleagues, a uh, male colleague, who has actually been on the babble in in the past, uh, said that they are reading 2020, they are only reading books written by women. That's what they said. Um, and there are a great deal of books about the environment, important ones, Yes, what have been written by women. So why not, if you are a man or a woman, are you listening to this and you think, that's great, but I'm not five to eight, so this book isn't for me, go and read, like, uh, Eleanor Ostrom's work about governing the commons, or go and read Secret, uh, Secret Spring by Rachel Carson. Silent Spring? Silent bollocks. <laughs> Silent, Silent Spring. Silent bollocks. 
I like the idea of Rachel Carson having this kind of groundbreaking, breaking, uh, definitive book called Silent Spring, and no one really paying attention. So she does a follow-up called Silent Bollocks. <laughs> you get the point anyway. Just leave me alone. <laughs> So that is just about it for this episode of Babble. Thank you very, very much, Kate, for coming to talk to us. Freshman of an event of talking to one of the children. She had a bag of props. I know. She had uh, with her. That's what we meant to bang on about. We were just helping her out. She's taking her down a taxi. I'll carry a bag for you. What is this massive bag? Oh, yeah, that's my inflatable meteorite and my bee costume. Like, what? I know tucked under the table while we were asking her about her book and she could have been doing the whole thing you know sweating horribly in a bee costume waving an inflatable meteorite about well we'll get her back next time to do that thank you all for struggling on through your bit of a lurgy I can hear bit of a lurgy yeah well I was thinking just the other day gosh it has been months since I got like a cold or anything like that lucky me and then got one Oh dear. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to Dickie Moore for the music that starts, ends and intertwinkles this podcast. To the legendary Arthur Stovall for the logo What Adorns It and Adorns Our Merch, what you can buy at wobblywobblywobbly.sustainababble.fish. By merch, I mean t-shirts. Uh, and to everyone who has listened, to you for listening, to people who've been giving us nice reviews on the iTunes and other assorted things. That's great. Really, really helps. And of course, to our Patreon supporters who chuck in a couple of quid every month uh, to keep this show on the road you can do that too you get a wobbly 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 dot patreon dot com slash sustainable if you would like to get in touch and tell us how much you enjoy the show how much you don't enjoy the show what you think we should have on the show you can do so by emailing us at hello at sustainable dot fish you can reach us on twitter at the babble wagon or you can search facebook for sustainable Right, that's it all. Are you going to go and read any more books for grown-ups tonight? Or are you happy with your bigger boy books? <laughs> um, I mean, I've read one book this week. I think that's quite enough. Quite all right. Very good. Bye! Bye! Bye!